listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hi, Michelle. Hey, Sarah. Welcome to Belaboured Episode 240. This week, we're talking about privatization, how public goods get turned to private profit, and how workers are made to suffer along the way, with the author of a new book on the subject, who also just happens to be a longtime organizer. But first, the news. We hear a lot of bad news from Brazil these days, but today we're bringing you something hopeful, the story of a labor-backed caravan fighting a destructive development project, and along the way, countering all our notions about labor versus environmentalists. Friend of the show, Claudia Horn, reached out to tell me all about it. Hello, Sarah. Thank you very much for inviting me to the show. I've, I've been always a, been a, a big fan, and I, um, yeah, I'm glad to talk about this. I'm, I'm Claudia Horn. Uh, I'm finishing my PhD at the London School of Economics on climate justice and international cooperation for the conservation of the Amazon. And I'm now also working as an advisor to the left mayor um, of the city of Belém, the capital of Pará in the north of Brazil, in the Brazilian Amazon. Excellent. So, yeah, we're talking because you just participated in a caravan with members of the Brazilian labor movement um, about a development project that would be harmful to the local community. So, um, yeah, can you basically tell us about this this caravan you were part of? Yeah, so um, the caravan is is uh, in protest of um, of a construction of a, of a of a waterway of an industrial waterway on the river of Tocantins in the state of Pará. It would essentially extend the Amazon export corridor uh, for soy and minerals from the from the center of soy production uh, to the north of Brazil to the port of Pacarena, Barcarena, to be exported to to Europe and um, and abroad. And so this construction is planned by the, by the, by the by, with the federal government and the state government, and they are waiting for approval in March. And uh, well, uh, the caravan is organized in protest because um, this this process of, um, of planning the construction uh, has not been taking into account the the Convention 169 of of the ILO of the of, uh, free prior and informed consent of the local communities and uh, and also like no local national laws of um, of consultation and also because of the impacts of this construction because uh, what the construction implies is is the imploding of um, of parts of the sediments of the river in order to to make it possible to to ship on and transport materials on the river uh, during the the dry season and and this kind of implosion and this this construction will have a huge impact on on, on fish stock and and so this caravan was organized by by different uh, associations of the labor movement uh, of Cuch Pará, which um, is the uh, Brazil's national trade union center, also the Federation of Agricultural Workers, the Fetagri uh, in Pará. It was also in partnership with the movement of Dam Affected People, uh, the Movimento de Atingidos pelos Barragens, MABI, but also the, the DOCs, of Camita, uh, the Pastoral Council of Fishermen, uh, the university, uh, and the popular youth movement, and and it was supported by by the Solidarity Center of AFL-CIO also, and and um, so this caravan was 
uh, during eight days uh, via via ship and 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 bus, and stopped in eleven communities to first inform about the construction, second to mostly listen to the concerns and demands of the communities in regards to the construction, and um, yeah, and mobilize and connect the communities and show that the national leadership of these um, labor union associations is, um, is, is listening and um, protesting together with the local base. Yeah, so tell me more about the the sort of reasons that the labor movement is really behind this this protest. Uh, well, um, it's, oftentimes it's it's seen as if the labor movement would would mostly support these kind of constructions because it's jobs. But actually, uh, in in the Amazon or in Brazil, is um, these kind of infrastructure constructions or mega projects are mostly done for for the export of soy first. So they serve um, an export uh, uh, economy that doesn't leave ma- doesn't, doesn't leave anything actually to the local communities. And then also uh, most of the traditional or indigenous communities, they are actually organized in workers' associations. So most of them are in fisher associations and at the same time they are also um small doing small scale agriculture so every most of the fishers are also um having uh like little farms and so these are essentially labor issues and also uh usually what what is what is seen in, in these constructions is is only um the concerns of the local communities right that are maybe displaced or yeah, most mostly this, but it's also affecting a large part of the of the local um, of the local workers. Like for instance, professors who uh, won't teach there anymore, or other workers because of yeah, the, like the displacement, the urbanization, and um, it affects workers because even if they um, get hired perhaps by the constructions, uh, these communities know very well that um, the impacts of these constructions, especially on fish stock, uh, affects affects the whole generation and generations to come. And this was very visible because the the waterway is, ex- is ex- um, essentially an extension of or is connected to um, hydroelectric dam in Tukuruni, which was um, built decades ago and which already had, had a huge effect on the fish stock uh, with many species dying. And I heard many, many really sad stories about, um, about these changes to community life and to the community economy. And so it is uh, a labor issue. And it's, it's very interesting and, and very significant, actually, that, um, that uh, Brazil's National Trade Union Center could uh, is like strengthening this base, uh, which is also a, a, like a, who plays a, a, a big role as the secretary Carmen Foro, who is uh, the national secretary of 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 the of CUT, and she she is from Para, she's from from the region, and so she has been very strong, very strong again uh, behind this. Yeah, it, it seems to go against this narrative we often hear, right, that the unions and the major union federations are sort of being cagey on environmental issues because jobs and short-term jobs 
Um, but I suppose in Brazil, some of the, these issues around environmental destruction are really, um, I don't know, are they more present there than they are in the U.S.? In the Amazon, especially, they are they are very present, and the and the protection of the communities um, is is very minimal. So actually, there is there is no real strong national policy on on the affected communities. So first, there isn't really a recognition of who is affected, uh, and the the kind of compensation is is completely minimal. It is often only uh, calculated on the material of the house, so it doesn't take in a, into account any other impacts on income, on community culture, or anything beyond this. So, so in in Brazil, this is, this is much more like, yeah, impactful and violent these these kind of infrastructure construction, like the the mega projects. Yeah, and I was just going to ask, obviously, about Bolsonaro, obviously, who is, um, <laughs> well, he is what he is, right? Mm -hmm. But the role that he plays, I guess, in sort of polarizing these issues in a way that maybe even just a few years ago, they might not have been. Yeah. So, uh, well, Bolsonaro has, has uh, like, on environmental issues, right, done, like, a like a double double strategy has he has um dismantled environmental regulation uh mm -hmm. with the defunding of uh, of environmental inspections uh and environmental licensing agencies like ibama ibama that is also responsible for the licensing of constructions like this hydroelectric dam and at the same time he has also been privatizing lots of the lots of the yeah conservation policy and and so he has, he's also encouraged mining in the Amazon. He has encouraged mining in indigenous on indigenous areas, and and of course, uh, like his his government, like his term has been used to implement uh, rapidly like these kind of constructions uh, because he's yeah he's very very much supported by the by the agro business. And so this is this is part of this that um, there's actually no no surprise that um, this is going forward and they want to get it through very quickly uh, because a more progressive uh, government would face uh, much more like would would allow also much more democratic me mechanisms of consultation which would really uh, make it very difficult to implement this construction so quickly. Right, right. Um, so what can the American and European labor movements learn from what's going on here? For the labor movement, uh, well, yeah, it's like really grappling with rural labor issues because in, in Brazil, like most of the, the workers are essentially rural workers and small-scale rural producers, even though the Brazilian agribusiness is is so big uh, and so significant for the Brazilian economy, who is actually um, providing food for Brazilians are small-scale farmers, family farmers, and and this is also what the what the, the MST, like the movement of landless workers, is fighting for, right? Like food security, and so and so all these issues in the in the Amazon and in the Brazilian context are very much connected, and. 
the strategy of the of the labor movement to connect with this and strengthen the space, I think is a is a big lesson. That was Claudia Horn. You can follow her on Twitter at Claudia Horn Says. It started with one little Starbucks shop up in Buffalo, but since then, the movement to unionize America's most iconic fancy coffee chain is percolating steadily through cities across the country. We last reported on the plight of the Buffalo Starbucks workers as they were facing repeated interference and intimidation from management as they prepared to vote for a union. They ended up winning their union election despite those obstacles, and now, according to the Labor Advocacy Network, More Perfect Union, union petitions have been filed at more than 70 Starbucks locations nationwide in 21 states. Most of these are in the very early stages of their campaigns, but Starbucks is wasting no time trying to push back against unionization efforts. Back in September, as workers were organizing in Buffalo, Starbucks executives reportedly showed up in surprise visits to some stores and engaged workers in one-on-one meetings, which workers denounced as a blatant intimidation and surveillance tactic. The company has retained the services of noted professional union busters with the law firm Littler Mendelssohn. Starbucks higher-ups have also blasted employees with anti-union messages that aim to deter workers from voting for a union, and has used its emergency messaging platform for anti-union propaganda, arguing that Starbucks already offers workers good working conditions and respects their quote-unquote voice. In reality, Starbucks worker organizers say that management is trying to cajole, confuse, and intimidate workers into voting against their own self-interest. The tensions escalated in Memphis, Tennessee this past week when several pro-union workers were fired, allegedly in retaliation for their organizing efforts. Starbucks Workers United, a national organization supporting the unionization campaigns, said that the management terminated seven workers or, quote, virtually the entire union membership in Memphis after they spoke to the media, unquote. According to CNN, a company spokesperson claimed that the workers had violated company policies, but the workers say their termination was clearly in retaliation for their activism. And to be clear, if a company fires you in retaliation for trying to start a union, that's a violation of the National Labor Relations Act. But because federal labor law is in practice weakly enforced, employers can feel pretty confident that they can engage in blatant union busting with virtual impunity, as the penalties for such unfair labor practices are generally minuscule. This week, another group of Starbucks workers based in New York City announced that they were organizing a union as well, calling out safety issues, stagnant wages, and just not having a say in how their workplaces run. Now, 16 Starbucks outlets across New York State have launched union drives. The New York City workers are organizing in collaboration with the Workers United New York New Jersey Regional Joint Board, an SEIU affiliate, which represents five stores in Brooklyn, Manhattan, and Long Island. If successful, their union could cover 170 employees. I spoke with Owen Burnham, a shift supervisor at the Astor Place Starbucks in Manhattan, about why he wants to form a union. I would definitely say um, a lot of our movement is in solidarity with our Buffalo partners, especially our Memphis partners right now. And we really just found that it was an amazing time. Um, You know, we're coming off of a pandemic. um, We're facing all these issues. And we found that we had the manpower and um, to really go through with it. You know, 75% of our store is for this union. Um, and that's also to be in mind that we are um, filing with five other stores. So our support network is huge. Um, and um, we really went about it uh, collectively as a group, um, very grassroots, grassroots form, um, getting our cards signed um, and really over conversation, collecting over our experiences um, and talking through what we've seen, um, what we've experienced, and um, pushing forward together as a group. 
And so uh, 75%, how many workers is that at your store? Um, that's about 24. Can you talk about some of the workplace conditions uh, and if there are any specific issues that spurred you to try to organize? Absolutely. I would definitely say um, uh, we're looking for, you know, a livable wage um, and, you know, less cuts to our hours. Um, we're also really looking for a seat at the table um, for these decisions as well. Um, and more specifically towards our shortages, our changes in policies. Um, that's been really hard to keep up with as partners, especially working with customers and at the end of management. Um, so that's really what spurred us along. Can you just talk a little bit about what it's been like working during the pandemic? Did the store ever shut down? Uh, what has it been like dealing with customers and all the safety precautions? For sure, yeah. It's been stressful. Um, to put it in one word, it's been stressful. Uh, on top of shortages and angry customers because of shortages, um, uh, different mask mandates, um, different vaccination requirements have been a struggle to keep up with. Um, and um, it's been hard to deal with that kind of discomfort on the floor, working with customers and not have it be supported by management necessarily, or management telling us work with what you have in terms of satisfying our customers and also our needs, um, which is, you know, kind of a major thing for our support network to be saying. We rely on these people and that's kind of a clarifying moment um, um, where we were just like, wow, we really, we really need help and we, we're the people to have this um, uh, support for ourselves. And how long have you been working at this Starbucks? I've been working for uh, with a lot of service industry workers, um, especially in high stress, you know, um, food service industries like like this, oftentimes when workers are really frustrated with their working conditions, they might be compelled to just quit altogether, right? But you're obviously doing something different. You, you're sticking with the same company and you're trying to improve the place where you work. Can you talk about why people are making that decision as opposed to just saying like, I'm fed up with this job, I'm just going to go get another one? Yeah, for sure. I think it speaks to our foresight. Um, I think a lot of us in this movement have an incredible foresight and compassion for not just who we're dealing with now, but our future partners, um, who comes after us. And that's just not a path that we're willing to leave unturned. Um, for me, at least, I, I just want to leave this job in whatever capacity, um, a better place than it was. Um, and if that's you know, staying with this job and making it a better place, I'm committed to that. Um, I don't want to leave because I love my coworkers. Um, I feel connected to this community, which I also think is another thing um, that keeps a lot of partners. Um, and I think combined between those two things that push for a future in our incredible community network, um, I think that's why we stay and fight, because we know that we can be better. We know that Starbucks can be better and that can support us better. And we want to see that vision happen. Starbucks has been <laughs> uh, pulling out all the stops, trying to push back against this unionization effort, starting with the stores in Buffalo. Have you faced any responses from management or are you kind of preparing for uh, that kind of backlash? We're definitely preparing. Yes. Um, while we at Afterplace have seen little to no um, effects in that way, especially not what Buffalo got we're definitely prepared and we're in communication and um, getting ready for that. Um, and that's just part of the process. I feel like um, we're 100% ready for it though. 
After dealing with a bunch of uh, customers giving you a hard time, I'm sure you, you guys are have nerves of steel at this point. So, right, right. <laughs> is there anything you want to add about um, the effort going forward? Obviously, the the announcement just came out, but you've already gotten some support from elected officials, and obviously, people are going to be watching this pretty closely. So, do you have any uh, do you have any thoughts going forward? Absolutely, we appreciate all the support. It's heard, um, it's seen, it's felt. Um, and I just want to, you know, drive this point home again that we're really here to have a seat at the table um, and just work together with Starbucks. We're not in conflict. Um, we believe in this. Co- we just really believe in this corporation and believe that it's better and it can be better. Um, so support. Thank you, um, my community. Thank you. And um, we're ready. Union strong. <laughs> that was Owen Burnham, a New York City Starbucks employee and aspiring union member. The congressional staffers are unionizing, and it's about damn time. Some background. A few weeks ago, I got a message on Instagram from an account called Dear White Staffers, calling my attention to the account and its overlaps with my work. The account, somewhat like the IA Stories Instagram that began in the run-up to the IATSE strike vote, is a place for congressional staffers, mostly staffers of color, to vent about poor treatment. And while it's anonymous, many of its stories do overlap with the general reporting about working in congressional offices. The pay is low, the hours long, and the emotional demands intense, and that's a normal job. There are plenty that sound much worse. So you could say we're not surprised to see a union drive launching among Hill staffers. On February 4th, a Twitter account and official declaration that a union campaign was underway dropped. The release reads in part, quote, After more than a year of organizing as a volunteer group of congressional staff, we are proud to publicly announce our efforts to unionize the personal offices and committees of Congress in solidarity with our fellow workers across the United States and the world, end quote. The announcement, they note, came on the heels of Speaker Nancy Pelosi's statement that she would fully support any organizing efforts by congressional staff. Of course, it's slightly more complicated than that. As Bloomberg Law notes, quote, the legal framework for staffers to unionize has been in place since lawmakers first passed the Congressional Accountability Act, which was initially passed in 1995 and then finalized through a rulemaking process in 1996. But lawmakers never adopted a resolution needed to put the provision into effect. Representative Andy Levin, Democrat of Michigan, will introduce a resolution this week to activate the provision, he said in a statement to Bloomberg government. Levin said he will recognize a union in his own office if his staffers choose to form one, end quote. Bloomberg continues, quote, if the House adopted the resolution with a simple majority, staffers could begin the process of forming a union on an office by office basis. The result could be a patchwork of unionized and non-union member offices. Quote, that disparity would extend to the other side of the hill. For Senate staffers to unionize, the Senate would need to adopt its own resolution. It would need 60 votes rather than a simple majority. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said in a statement through a spokesperson that he believes that hardworking Senate staff have the right to organize their workplace, and if they choose to do so, he would support that effort. Senator Sherrod Brown of Ohio plans to put together a separate resolution that would similarly allow for Senate offices to unionize, end quote. So it's an interesting and complicated story. While many Democrats jumped to say that they would support their staff unionizing, unsurprisingly, Republicans appear mostly concerned with how they could take a resolution back if it was passed. 
It's also interesting to see if, well, unionization might extend to the offices of members who are less union friendly, if staffers started to see much better conditions in unionized offices. Stay tuned, of course, for more. And if you are a unionizing Hill staffer, we want to hear from you. Belabored at DissentMagazine.org. New York City is home to one of the biggest populations of app-based workers, the people whose daily toil revolves around the jobs that come to them through a phone app, whether they're meal deliveries or DoorDash or Uber ride pickups or other gigs that are issued across a digital platform. These app-based gig workers have been complaining for years about extremely low pay, volatile work schedules, and abusive treatment on the job. And recently, delivery workers scored a victory with city council legislation that guarantees certain basic rights and protections, such as bathroom access, when they're delivering for restaurants. Now, app-based workers from multiple platforms are banding together to form Justice for App Workers, which describes itself as, quote, a coalition movement representing 100,000 rideshare drivers and delivery workers, unquote. They consist of several worker organizations in the New York area, representing rideshare drivers, black car drivers, and delivery workers. Their demands are straightforward and kind of the bare minimum for decent working conditions. They want a living wage, a safe work environment, rules to prevent unfair deactivation of their app accounts, which is tantamount to being fired. They want access to health and mental health care, access to bathrooms, and of course, the right to form a union. The catalyst for the alliance's organizing has been the pandemic. The Alliance pointed out in their announcement of their launch that for two years, these workers have been, quote, braving the streets to keep communities running and performing essential services for many, including vulnerable and immunocompromised customers reliant on food, medicine, and grocery deliveries, unquote. And yet in return, they've gotten poverty wages, exploitation, and in many cases, real danger, as many of these workers who are on the streets all day are at risk of violent assaults and robbery. The workers define a safe work environment as one in which there are, quote, harsh punishments for perpetrators of violations against the workers, as well as the ability to trace customers. The alliance is also challenging the heavy-handed policing of app-based workers, calling for an end to, quote, the constant threat of ticketing and towing, unquote, by authorities. Currently, the alliance is seeking more protections at the local level, but they say they plan to advocate for improved conditions for app-based workers around the country. There is still an open question, though, of what kind of structural reforms are needed to ensure that app-based workers have the same rights as other workers at regular companies and access to the protections of federal labor standards. Currently, these platforms typically do not treat their drivers and delivery workers as actual employees, so they are generally not covered by state and federal labor standards. So that means no unemployment insurance if they lose their jobs, as many did during the first months of the pandemic, no workers' compensation if they're injured, and no minimum wage. And of course, no right to unionize because you need to be a formal employee to do that under the National Labor Relations Act. But by forming this alliance, workers are taking the first step towards making their jobs fairer, even if they're not recognized as employees, because they know who they work for, even if their bosses don't admit it. Over the past several decades, we have witnessed an extraordinary transfer of wealth and power from public ownership into private hands. The privatization of public goods, such as public lands, transportation infrastructure, healthcare services, and schools, has paralleled a conservative turn in American politics in which, quote-unquote, free markets are championed as the most efficient and effective means of managing social services and distributing public resources. 
But labor and community activists say that the privatization of various public services and institutions, from state universities to prisons to municipal water systems, has undermined civil rights, deepened inequality, eroded working conditions, and made government less accountable. Donald Cohen, executive director of the research group In the Public Interest and co-author of the new book, The Privatization of Everything, talked to Belabored about the consequences of mass privatization, the impact on workers, and how the public can reclaim its ownership of public goods. For someone who is not familiar with this issue, why don't you just define what privatization means to you? Sure. Um, and, and we have a I have kind of a broader a definition than is typical. I think, you know, most people think of privatization as, you know, privatizing a prison or selling off a water system or outsourcing, you know, some city services and all, you know, custodial services or any number of things. And all that is part of privatization. But, you know, I, I take it a step further and I define it in the following way, that it's private control over public goods. And I need to elaborate a little bit about that. What do we mean by public goods, right? Public goods are, in, again, in my definition, um, not the economics textbook definition, are those things that we all need to survive the basics and we need everyone to have, like health, like education, like knowledge, like you know, clean air and clean water and those fundamentals. And so private in- interests get control over those things in a variety of ways. One of those ways is outsourcing. Another way is uh, if we don't have, you know, when you when taxes are cut or conservatives run the government and, don't, and won't expand social programs and social safety net programs, then people are left on their own in the market to meet their basic needs. For example, well, childcare isn't isn't outsourced, but it's a fully privatized public good in my view. Parents need childcare at this point, and it's incredibly expensive. Uh, so we should be, you know, we, we should recognize that every parent needs it, and we should recognize that we need every parent to have it. And then the other way that uh, that kind of control is exercised, and so, and therefore part of privatization, is when we allow private corporations to inspect themselves for, you know, for health and safety requirements, or, you know, thing, you know, just sort of basic uh, common sense regulations when we don't have the we don't have the adequate regulations and laws to protect people's health, you know, our health and our environment. Uh, and even when we do have laws that do that, we don't have the staffing, the public agencies to oversee and to monitor. So, you know, private companies that, you know, send, put out uh, toxic emissions in neighborhoods have some level of control over people's health in that neighborhood. So it's really kind of a broad definition. It's all about control and power. With your organization in the public interest, you work on issues like this. You research um, how this plays out on the federal, state, and local level. Are there any particular examples of uh, privatization issues that you've worked on recently that come to mind? Well, it's constant. So um, we worked on recently. Let's see. Private prisons comes up all the time, Alabama more recently. And and we don't run, we don't do campaigns. We support organizations, unions, and others around the country that do campaigns, that do legislative campaigns or site fights. So, we, you know, we can go in and out as, as needed. So, you know, there's an effort to privatize prisons in Alabama that keeps, you know, that, that keeps on coming. Uh, we lost, we won, we lost, you know, I think it's, we probably lose in the end because it's Alabama. Um, there are typically, there are often water, uh, uh, proposals to privatize water systems in the country. There's one going on in Chester, Pennsylvania, not too far from Philly. Um, 
let's see, constant uh, uh, efforts to increase the number of uh, school vouchers in the country in public in education. Uh, you know, most of the red states are passing school voucher laws, some, you know, uh, more extensive than others. Just to clarify, these are vouchers that uh, public school parents can use to remove their children from public schools and go pay for a private school or even a religious school. Exactly. Yeah. Sorry for not clarifying that. As well as the the growth of charter schools, which are publicly funded, privately operated schools. There's nothing, you know, people go to, there's good charter schools and bad charter schools at the individual level, but the growth is really the, uh, and the supercharged growth at this point is the dismantling of the public education system. It's, it is the privatization of public education. So it really is kind of, it is soup to nuts in our world. Can you discuss the history of privatization a little bit, um, particularly in the post-war era? There have always been conservative efforts to shrink or defund the government. Um, and certainly there is, uh, there is backlash against New Deal programs, for instance. But things really started to heat up right around the civil rights movement um, getting underway. So why don't you talk about the history of privatization in recent generations uh, with respect to issues like segregation? Yeah. So the privatization of public education uh, was, in the 50s, a segregationist, racist response to Brown versus Board of Education. White parents didn't want their kids in schools with black kids. Simple as that. So what happened? State legislatures passed voucher policy, school voucher legislation that enabled parent families to take their school voucher, their dollars, tax dollars, and go to a private school of their choice. And, you know, what, what got created is white flight academies and segregation academies. And, you know, and schools predominantly black, black kids started getting closed down. Um, that was the response. And that, you know, and you see that not quite as extreme today, but you see that was the first time we heard about school choice, right? Because now that's a theme we continue to hear. That's how they talked about it in the 50s. We just want school choice. We want to go where we want to go. The, this is, you know, this should be a market good, basically. That's how markets work. So from that point, you know, going forward from there, in the 70s, in the corporate, uh, you know, corporations and conservative ideologues uh, realized that, you know, we're actually, we're afraid that of the, in the growth of government through, you know, the new laws, uh, highway safety laws and environmental laws and sort of a whole set of things. And so there was the beginning of the backlash that happened. And in that period, some of the conservative think tanks got created, the intellectual infrastructure got created, Heritage, and Cato and others. And then Reagan gets elected. And Reagan, uh, you know, becomes the, you know, propagandist in chief for, you know, an anti-government pro-market bucket of ideas, ideology. He, though, did not succeed in privatizing much. He failed, in fact. And, you know, the Democrats still controlled Congress. But they came up, you know, they, they realized in that period, those that were still figuring out how to do it, how to downsize government, how to create government in their worldview, which is very, very limited. And they realized that privatization could be a tool to do that, could begin, you know, could be used to downsize the number of people who work for government, begin to change the dynamics of government spending in a variety of ways. When Bill Clinton got elected as a new Democrat, more conservative, in a different political you know, environment, in an anti-government environment, you know, he fundamentally implemented, you know, the Reagan privatization agenda. Uh, baked in deeply into the Gore 
perform national performance review commission reports that were done privatization as a key strategy. Um, and then welfare reform happened that, that included in the legislation, uh, the ability to privatize significant pieces of uh, welfare of our safety net. The first time that had happened. So Clinton really was the president who institutionalized privatization as, as governing policy. George W. Bush, you know, he, he, you know, he had wins and losses. He privatized, you know, war. I think we're, we're familiar with that in terms of how many private contractors there were waging war in Iraq and Afghanistan. But the good news was he tried to privatize Social Security. And because Social Security is a universal program that everybody over 65 or 70, whenever 60, you know, 65 or 70 gets, um, and people saw that, you know, the market wasn't necessarily going to save them because market the, the stock market goes up and down. So he failed miserably at that. So, um, you know, you, you can you can track all this forward from there. And now it's sort of baked in this ideas that the government has limited roles, that the market should decide uh, certain things, that competition and the profit motive are the right ways to drive progress. Those ideas are baked in at all levels of government right now um, in, in governing practice and philosophy. Right. And it was a bipartisan effort. Um, so <laughs> it's, it shows that both parties um, have sort of been captured by this privatization mentality. Yeah, it still is. It's still very much. Now, it's not, you know, it's not universal. There are, you know, it's all over the map, but it's absolutely bipartisan. Right. So... You talk a lot in your book about how one of the core tenets of this privatization philosophy is the supremacy of the contract, right? Uh, the private contract. And if you follow labor issues, you're likely to encounter issues with contracts with relation to the labor contract, right? Collective bargaining and sort of negotiations between uh, labor and capital. So in that context, Aren't contracts just sort of a uh, sort of a, a very familiar part of um, the way things are run in this country? Um, what is what do you see uh, that is so dangerous about um, this sort of uh, effort to make the private contract kind of sacrosanct? That's a good question. I mean, in terms of labor rights, which I'll move on, labor rights, I mean, you know, the conservatives believe that an individual worker has the, and an employer, you know, it is their right and obligation and responsibility to contract with one another. You know, they're not into collective bargaining, the most conservative. It's individuals should, you know, that's the nature of our individual, you know, economic relationships. And obviously there's a massive power imbalance there. Uh, let me, I'll give an example or two just uh, to describe th the real issues around contracts. Cause you know, we all contract for things, government contracts for things. It's in the abstract. There's nothing wrong with it. It's all in the implementation. Um, so in, I'll, I'll give the example of Chicago cause it's the parking meters in Chicago cause it's illustrative to lots of things. In 2008, 2009, heat of the recession, you know, cities bleeding red ink, you know, faced with desperate and hard, really hard choices. Uh, the mayor, Staley at the time, uh, announced a proposal. This was on a Friday, announced a proposal from a consortium of three company, global companies, Morgan Stanley, a sovereign wealth fund from the Middle East and a national parking company that they said they would give the city $1.1 billion up front to meet their, you know, meet their needs, you know, their desperate needs in exchange for the 
control of the city's 36,000 parking meters for 75 years. Vote on Tuesday. Uh, You know, complicated deal, no scrutiny, vote, deal done. So here's what became clear after the fact, you know, when folks could analyze and look at it. One is an incredibly stupid way to borrow money into on your future parking meter revenues. You know, this is, you know, this contract will be over in 2083. We don't know if we'll be driving in 2083. So, but that's the least important. The most important, the most problematic is that if the city doing their, the city leaders doing their job want to eliminate parking spots to create dedicated bus lanes or bike lanes to get people out of cars to deal with climate or pedestrian malls because they have, you know, they're changing land use patterns or as well to deal with climate or any number of sort of fundamental municipal responsibilities. If they want to eliminate spots, they have to buy them back at the future value of the spot. So it's a lot of money. So what does that mean? That means so the contract now ties the hands of the democratically elected leadership of the city to do its job. Right, because it's not you know a deal's a deal. Contracts are rigid documents. Um, so, you know, if, if a city council propo- member proposes to create bike lanes, they may not be able to afford to do it, so they don't do it because they have to keep the contractor whole, and they are contractually obligated to do that. So, you know, that in my view says this is the problem. The problem is it's an assault on democracy because it's a straitjacket on democratic practices and what we ought to be able to decide and address over time. And you see in contracts that, you know, they're all rigid documents of any kind, the good ones, the bad ones, they're rigid. You know, they allow what they allow and they don't allow what they don't allow or they're ambiguous. And then you go to court, which is, you know, which is why there's so much contract litigation in America. So you see that sort of rigidity in every contract. That's the problem in every kind of public service. Right. So I can see why uh, maybe an outside observer would would see how privatization would impact uh, users of public services or users of public goods, right? Um, The impact on workers' rights, I think, is perhaps a little less obvious. So can you explain and maybe give some examples of instances in which labor rights specifically have been undermined by privatization and uh, by these sort of rigid contracts, as you call them? When a company says they can, you know, when they're advocating to privatize or outsource a service, they basically, you know, the argument is really always really simple. We can do it cheaper. We can do it better. We could do it faster. We hear that cheaper, better, faster all the time. So, you know, the key word there being cheaper, right? Because, you know, they have to take money out for profits and executive compensation and other things. So, you know, we say, what are you going to spend less money on? And virtually always it's workers, Right. And so unionized workers that make, you know, twenty five dollars an hour as a custodian in a school district, you know, become a non-union worker uh, for a subcontractor uh, making 12, 15 bucks an hour. I mean, so first off, privatization and outsourcing is you know part of it. And part of why it's part of a conservative political agenda is because it because it's a, a key strategy of downsizing the public sector unions and, and breaking the labor movement. Very, you know, explicitly, um, particularly in education, they, you know, there, you know, there are folks who, you know, want to decimate the National Education Association, you know, and the AFT and all that. So the first thing is just, you know, it's taking a union job with with 
collective bargaining rights with protections, uh, you know, under a collective bargaining agreement and turning them into jobs that don't have it. That's, that's the most important thing. The other area that we write about in the book is, uh, you know, it, uh, under mandatory arbitration, uh, you know, what is it? Uh, 56%, I think in the recent, you know, in the book, which was 2018 stats that we had, um, of 56 or 58% of non-union workers in the country were required to sign as a condition of employment, mandatory arbitration agreements. So what does that mean? What does that mean? Is it if the, if the worker has a conflict with the employer that they believe they've violated the law, um, they don't have, uh, they've waived their rights to go to, uh, into the legal system, to the courts. They have to go to a private, uh, arbitrator. Often the arbitrator is paid for and hired by the company. So both you have an enormous conflict of, in, con- conflict of interest there, you know, because the, the arbitrator wants to get the next job too. Um, and so, but you've fundamentally taken away employees' rights to the legal system. And, it, you know, and it got a little bit worse. The, um, the, there was a court case, I think, and uh, it went to the Supreme Court, I think, in 2018 as well, that said that workers could not uh, file class action suits. Uh, they could file them, but it was not considered collective action under the National Labor Relations Act, right? So it sort of closed off opportunities for workers to file class action suits, you know, when there's larger cases, um, because it was not protected, you know, you know, collective action under is protected under the national labor relations act, but apparently a class action lawsuit is not considered by this court or or this conservative court as collective action. Right. And that's a, that's a direct assault on the uh, national labor relations act as well as just actual uh, shrinking of the scope of sort of our, our bedrock federal labor law. Right. It's exactly right, right? I mean, you know, if you can't join a union, you still can act collectively in different ways, like file a lawsuit and things like that. So we, we want collective action. And then, and then I'll, I'll give another, you know, uh, employers are often in tra- charter schools, uh, are often asked to sign, uh, agree to non-compete clauses. In other words, if they, you know, work in a charter school, they promise not to go to another school uh, for the next two years, Right. And the reason they do that, the reason those non-compete clauses exist is because charter schools are a market uh, entity. And so they don't want to share the, you know, what they do. They don't want to share their, you know, their teaching methodologies. In fact, charter school teachers in places we have found are required as a condition of employment to sign non-disclosure agreements that they will not under, you know, threat of lawsuit, they will not share the school's trade secrets. And what are those trade secrets? Lesson plans, curriculum, teaching methods. Um, so you know, it's, it's you know, again, it keeps the uh, teacher connected to that charter's particular charter school, perhaps longer than they want to, um, because they've signed it. You know, because they're a teacher, that's their profession, but they can't get another job. You know, they're not legally allowed to, because of a contract, uh, go work for another charter school or another public school. Right. Seems like there's also just a. Uh general connection between um, privatization, the shrinking of government and uh, deregulation more broadly. We've been reporting a lot during the pandemic on issues of occupational health and safety. And one of the major uh, manifestations of shrinkage of government and deregulation on the federal level is certainly 
a shrinkage of the resources and authority go into uh, monitoring workplace safety, for instance. Would you say that even on issues as basic as health and safety, that efforts to privatize and outsource some core government regulatory functions is also undermining workers' rights? Oh, absolutely. And I think about it in a couple of ways. One of which is, you know, when I said earlier, how do I define privatization? It's private control over public goods. One might argue that going home alive from the at the end of the day is a public good we should try to guarantee for all people, right? Or, uh, alive and unharmed, right? So when a workplace is unsafe, that employer has control over the systems and structures and, you know, and some, and, and your health and your safety. That's why we have health and safety laws. So when, uh, we both don't adequately regulate, you know, cause it's still more, you know, there's always more, uh, regulations, workplace safety regulations that need to be promulgated, but that are opposed by industry. So it takes a very long time to make it happen. But the ones that we do have, we don't have adequate cops on the beat, as it were, you know, OSHA inspectors, whether it's, you know, state OSHA or federal OSHA. So in the end, that fundamentally gives the company, you know, they're watching themselves, which means they're, you know, they again, they have, you know, further exercise control. So and and then take it one more step. If you don't have it, if you have a union, at least you have a process of protecting yourself and, you know, and you have a shop steward or you have, you know, you, you can file grievances and things like that. But if you don't have a union um, and you're working in an unsafe workplace and there's no OSHA inspectors because, you know, taxes have been cut and departments have been cut, you're screwed. Going back to the history of, of privatization, you you draw some comparisons between uh, examples of privatization uh, today and how things operated during the Gilded Age, um, which was, of course, over a century ago at the height of um, sort of the the era of robber barons and and such. Um, So what do you think are some of the similarities between um, that era in which we saw, you know, astronomical wealth being produced by capital and as well as, um, you know, a lot of labor unrest during that time. How does that compare to the, the economic and governing landscape that we're facing today? Well, I think, you know, I, I, I can't give numbers, but I think, you know, at the root of what we're dealing with today is an obscene concentration of wealth and income and therefore power. That's what was going on back then is, you know, the the trusts when large corporations were forming, there was this growth of, you know, concentrated power. That's what we're seeing today. And we're seeing it both because of tax cutting, you know, of, of the wealth, you know, off the, you know, of the, the wealthiest. We're seeing it because of, you know, reduced union density so that the spoils of profits and productivity go to the top, not the middle or the bottom. Um, and then, you know, to the extent that uh, folks, you know, as wealth gets concentrated, then wealth exercises their political power and influence. And the purpose of their power and influence is to grow more wealth. That's what businesses do. That's what corporations do is they grow and they sell things and they build wealth. There's no limits to that. So if they have political influence, they want to use it for two things, to grow and to limit costs, which means limit regulations and and other things. So I think, you know, in many ways, there's some great similarities uh, between that period and this period. Unfortunately, and certainly, you know, there was a there was a backlash to the Gilded Age. Right, um, it was followed immediately by the Progressive Era. Yeah. I wonder, I wonder what will come after the Gilded Age that we're living through right now. 
Well, I think, you know, you're starting to see green shoots of it in the in Starbucks. And, you know, there's a lot of discontent, uh, you know, that's at its root economic discontent in the country, uh, you know, both, you know, because of a lack of social wage, you know, a lack of universal health care and child care and other things that we all need. And also because wages have stagnated, you know, I think, unfortunately, you know, populist right wingers have taken a lot of advantage of that. But in the end, people want what, you know, people want a good life. And that's, you know, so that's the part where we say, okay, it's, our, it's, it's, our, it's for ours to step up and say, there's a different, there's a different route here. Mm-hmm. Um, you discuss the prison system quite a bit and uh, particularly the, um, the emergence of the private prison industry. Um, uh, and, and it struck me, um, you know, uh, in your discussion of, of, the privatization of prisons, as well as um, immigrant detention centers, that some comparisons could be drawn to between the prison industrial complex today and the type of collusion between um, business and and the carceral state um, back in the wake of the Civil War, right, when we saw the convict leasing system. Can you talk about the, the prison system today? First of all, just outline um, the issues that we're facing right now with companies like the geo group um, and what, what they've done to um, to the prison system and uh, what are the economic consequences of that, both for the people who are incarcerated as well as, you know, the communities that are affected by, by incarceration and law enforcement. Sure. Um, that's a big question. So let me break it up because it's a, Good question. So one is important to recognize, I think, and I've said this in all sectors, is that businesses do one thing. They sell stuff. That's all they do. Right. So and all they care about then is how many they sell, how much they get for it for each thing they sell, how much it costs to make it, what the profit margin is uh, and what their market share is. That's all they care about. So what do prison companies do? Private prison companies, they sell heads and beds. So. You know, in the 1890s, you know, during the strong on crime period, say, you know, prison, the private prison industry was heavily involved with ALEC. And I'm sure outside of ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange to pass, uh, you know, to try to uh, stimulate around the country strong on crime laws. Three strikes, you're out, mandatory minimums, you know, et cetera, et cetera. You know, purpose of which is to create bigger demand for their product, right? That there's more people in cars, you know, who committed crimes, then there's more people who need beds. So um, that's what they do. The second thing I'll, I'll mention is that, so they sign, and there's two big companies, you know, Core Civic and Geo Group, but there's a lot of other pieces of corrections and immigrant detention that are privatized as well, forensic healthcare, community corrections, kind of all that stuff, but I'll stay on prisons. So but one of the in the contracts, going back to the deep, to the you know, rigid contracts and the deals that are done in contracts, we've found many of the private prison contracts that, uh, that at the state level have bed guarantees in them. Keep the beds filled or pay anyway. Some are 80%, some are 90%. Arizona was 100%. You pay no matter whether there's a prisoner there or not. So what's the impact of that? Uh, a few things. One of which is it's, you know, it is in their interest, of course, to keep heads coming into beds, you know, because, you know, if the population goes too, you know, down too much, they may not get the next contract. So they want to keep the population up. So that, that is in their interest. 
So, you know, it's a risk to, you know, reduce crime is not a good thing for private prison companies, as it says in their stock exchange filings. But here's the other important thing. So let's say prison populations do go down. And in Arizona, they are because of uh, marijuana legalization. There are fewer people. So if there's fewer people, they still have to pay for every bed. What we lose then is the ability to use those savings for things like mental health services, job training, supportive housing, sort of the set of things that, you know, we need to do to, to keep people out of prison to reduce the carceral state. Um, And so, you know, we've locked in their profits in ways that prevent us from actually addressing the real purpose. And that is reduce prison populations, increase success, uh, you know, and integration into society for people because, you know, we got to keep their interest whole. So, you know, that's the main thing is, you know, their interests are locked in. And and I'll say one other thing I find really interesting. I think we write about it in the book. You know, if you if you know they're publicly traded companies, those two, so they have a response, a fiduciary obligation to their shareholders to make you know to be profitable. So what that says to me is, if there's any law, piece of legislation being considered or regulation being considered at a state level, at a county level, at a federal level, where they have interests, they can't not be involved, right? Because they want to keep the money flowing, and they've and they've they have obligations to their shareholders to keep the money flowing. So the problem is once they're in, their interests are in, and their interests are counter to our interests. They want more heads and beds. We want fewer heads and beds. That's the simple choice. I know that you know Geo Group and Corrections Corporation of America, they get a lot of attention because they are prime examples of um, fully privately run prison facilities and immigrant detention facilities. But the privatization in the prison system goes further than that, right? I mean, you know, there there are state prisons and federal prisons with you know massive contracts with these private third party vendors that are you know charging <laughs> charging massive fees for phone calls and and email and there, there's all sorts of uh, overlap right uh, between the private sector and the prison system even in government run facilities right oh absolutely no I mean the even the big companies you know they you know they've uh, you know they're big corporations they've been doing um, uh, vertical integration you could call it they want a piece of the entire stream from from arrest. To release, you know, you know, and every and everything in between, they've mapped it out. So, what, for example, uh, the transport, you know, pr- pr- prisoners or people being moved from one facility to the other, that's privatized. And some of them, you know, some of the companies are owned by the big ones too. Let's see, uh, bail, that's a private you know, horror. horror. Um, in the prison, phone companies, um, you know, f- f- being able to use the phone, uh, being able to get money. Now you go through, there's a company called JPay, you can get money. There are, there are prisons around the country that have, uh, you know, kind of basically eliminated in-person family visits, and now they're only Skype visits, video calls. So those are companies as well. Uh, the commissary, the food service. And then when you get it, and then at the back end, um, there's probation, Right. If someone's under probation, the purpose of probation is to, you know, both make sure everybody's ready to get out if they've committed a crime or, or what have you, but also a hand, you know, some support. Right. So that they can reintegrate after you, after you're incarcerated. There, you know, there are places where that has been privatized, where they are giving control uh, to the probationer, to a private company who makes money the longer the person is in probation. 
the more they have to do to get through their probation, and sometimes they, you know, they they create need, and they make them get a drug test, and then they get money from that, or they make them do something else, they get money from that. It's just control of these folks, um, and, and as well as commu- you know, halfway houses, community corrections, uh, mental health facilities. A little piece of it again. It's there's about a hundred to hundred and fifty billion dollars spent by governments in corrections. Companies just want it. They want it. They're going to take. They're going to seek out every corner of it, and that's exactly what they do. The reason I, when I was reading this, I kept going back to the example of prisons following the end of slavery is that you, you also see parallels today with um, our privatized or quasi-privatized prison facilities, primarily disproportionately affecting communities of color, especially black communities. Right? These are working-class communities that are being affected. Mass incarceration is really a phenomenon of of the poor and the disadvantaged in this country. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I'll even say, cause you know, the focus, it's a labor oriented podcast. There's some, you know, there are real things. The labor movement at Canon is doing around the country. There are, I have, I visited a prison in Washington state women's prison that had inside it a partnership with a few, three construction trade unions as creating a pre-apprenticeship. I mean, a yeah, pre-apprenticeship program. Um, to, you know, I said these women, when they got out of prison, had a leg up to get into the full apprenticeship program. So there are real things that the labor move, real roles the labor movement can play. Cause you know, you think about it, what do you want, you know, people, uh, what do people need to not be, one of the things people need to not be in prison is a good job, <laughs> a good union job. There are many other, other things going on there, but labor movement has played a, in some places playing a real positive role. Um, and on the flip side, um, we have a lot of uh, companies that are doing business with prisons, and in many cases, um, you know, it, uh, you could you could definitely draw parallels to um, the way prisons used forced labor um, of black people after emancipation um, as as a way of just essentially you know keeping the labor force captive. Um, you know, certainly there there is still. Um, there is still employment, uh, private employment going on um, with incarcerated people all over the country. That's right. That's right. And, you know, it's, there's people say, but, you know, you want people to get a good job, you know, training and good you know, employment skills and all that. But, you know, you don't get that by being jobbed out to a, to a private company to do mass production. That's not what that's not what we're talking about. If you want to give people skills, give them skill, you know, create programs to give people skills. Right. But it isn't exploiting them. Right. And preferably you would have those programs for people who uh, like they don't have to get incarcerated first before they have access to them. Well, there you go. You know, I would say about prisons is a real simple way to reduce prison populations. There's only three ways. One is don't put people in in the first place. Second is don't put them in the wrong place because our prison system is also our country's mental health system. It's the numbers are astronomical. Uh, And then the third way is make sure people leave. They don't come back. Means good job. Means a house. Means healthcare. Means a whole set of things. This is all doable. I was thinking about um, the civil court system, not just the criminal court system, but but civil law and the civil court system. I mean, there are there are people who would argue, with good reason, that our entire system of civil laws is kind of based on the protection of private property. Um, so, is it? Is it any surprise, I guess, that um, that we have these these movements to um, privatize whole chunks of our government, um, and and our government, uh, in essence, has historically functioned uh, to you know to serve capital in many ways. 
Yeah, no, it's no question. I mean, it's, you know, again, we're in an environment. I think, you know, there's been a propaganda victory over the last 40 years, you know, post-Keynesianism of, you know, the, the limited government role and the, and the dominance or the superiority of the market and all that. You know, and you lay on top of that, you know, sort of basic jurisprudence that says property rights above all else, contract rights above all else. The whole thing tips the balance of power massively uh, in the legal system, in the economic system, in the judicial system, in all of it, because if property rights can supersede health rights or public rights to you know the, the, of things that we all need, which is how basically America is run, that's one of the things that prevents us from creating universal public goods that we all should have. You talk about how part of the charter school agenda is undermining teachers' unions. And we've seen many of the main opponents of the charterization of public education has been uh, teachers' unions. Can you, can you talk about the, um, you know, what has been the effect on, on, um, on the labor movement and education in general? And, you know, I, I guess to, uh, to a person who isn't that familiar with this issue, they would maybe assume that it's possible to unionize charter schools as well. Um, it has been done in a few cases, not many, but what is it about charterization and privatization of schooling that undermines uh, the power of organized labor? Sure. Well, first, m- mostly it is a non-union sector. So it's, you know, it's taking a unionized sector and making it, you know, and, and, and growing a significant parallel non-union sector. Having said that, there is increasing uh, organization going on. It's still small, but is there, but there is increasing organization organizing going on within the charter sector, and that's a good thing. Now, it's, so it's basically sort of two tier though, because the charter sector, uh, charter school teachers make less. They have fewer benefits. They have fewer rights. Um, uh, even if I assume, even if they're union, they probably make less too. Um, there's not that you know, not that many. So that's number one. Number two is. What the pro-charter folks understand is they want a parallel, deregulated public education system to the, you know, and, and some want it to be the education system. Reed Hastings, the, you know, who owns Netflix, I guess, you know, he quoted a saying in California where he lives that, you know, he wanted, he thought 90% of all kids should be in charter schools. So essentially, you know, at the big, at the 30,000 foot level, it's the deregulation of public education. Which means, and deregulation means deunionization by and large. Instead of negotiating with, if you're a union and at, you know negotiating with the Los Angeles Unified School District, you're negotiating for all the teachers. You know, you have a, a big block of workers negotiating with a big institution the way it should be. If you have, uh, you know, charter schools, they got to pretty much negotiate one school at a time. It's like the Starbuckization of, of public education. I, I just have to sort of put this in the context of what's going on with public education generally right now. I mean, the backlash against um, so-called critical race theory or just, you know, the teaching of, you know, actual history of racism in, in public schools. That's all happening alongside these ongoing efforts to privatize education, right? So what do you see as the connection between this ideological attack on educators, you know, painting them all as these dangerous radicals, right? And this more subtle or subsurface effort to dismantle public education altogether. Well, well, the first thing I say is, I, I don't. I, I, it's not happening at the same time. It's not happening on on side of it. It is part of it. 
it, it, it is it is intricately tied. So what are the you know because this is this is first of it's a political strategy, right? It's, it, it's you know it's that, you know they see red meat and they're going for red meat, but what their end game is exact? It, they're using it for the same end game of dismantling public education, right? That's what's going on, and in fact, it is working. Right. They're, you know, first off, they're using it in places like Virginia where Youngkin just got elected and they're, you know, they're advancing voucher bills and charter bills as part of this uh, effort, not as distinct from it. Uh, the right wing, you know, funders to Coke type funders and other of the major funders that are that are, you know, uh, astroturfing a lot of this stuff. It's their agenda to dismantle the public education system. And, you know, for multiple reasons. One is they're true libertarian believers, but they also hate the teachers union and they believe and and they may believe because they don't like unions, but they also might some of them believe that, well, the unions are part of the Democratic Party and this gives us permanent political control. It's not different. It's it, it is one of the tactics to dismantle public education. You discuss how privatization and the kind of mentality of privatization hinges on citizens coming to see themselves more as consumers of public goods rather than rather than just, you know, members of society with collective responsibility. Can you talk about sort of the the root of that kind of consumer mentality when it comes to public goods? So what does it come from? So one is it's, you know, it is the, the, the Milton Friedman worldview, right? The Milton Friedman conservative worldview that, you know, basically is as people should, their relationship with government, they fundamentally wanted to redefine our relationship with government as you get what you pay for and only what you pay for um, and have no obligations to each other, right? You're just, you're on your own. That's the consumer worldview because yeah, that's, you know, that mar- that matches our experience as consumers. When you buy something, all you care about is yourself, whether you're getting what you pay for, right? Um, that's And there's nothing wrong with that. That's just fine. Now, we want government services to be good as well. You know, we both pay for them. And even if we don't pay for them, you know, we're citizens. You know, we, we're voters. We want them to be good. This is democracy. Um, but there's more to it than that, Right. We are actually not on our own. We are actually interdependent, right? Whether you admit it or not, whether you agree with it, whether you want to wear a mask, whether you don't want to wear a mask, we, in fact, are interdependent. You know, and COVID, for me, punctuates that point quite well, right? The, what I have come to see and believe is that the health of all of us depends on the health of each of us, right? So we have a collective response. We are connected in that way. We also have obligations to each other to do no harm, to support one another, to, to you know, the, the actions we take and harm other people. That's what citizenship, small c, I'm referring to, not the politicized, you know, word citizenship. Um, that's what citizenship means, is you, you, both, you acknowledge the reality of our interdependence and our um, responsibilities to the whole, because it's a democracy, it's a, it's a, you know, society is a project. Right. It's not like you're not on your own. You got to you got to do your part um, and you got to negotiate with everybody else. That's the difference between being a consumer and being a citizen. Consumers, you care about your, what you get and citizens, you care about what you get, but you care that you but you realize that it's part of a broader context. I, I, I will say I will add one thing that, you know, in, in the in the Clinton years, Vice President Gore led the National Performance Review, the reinventing government you know, commission, as it were, and baked into the language of that. There's a couple of books came out of it. 
for lots of recommendations, baked into the languages, you know, that the Americans were customers of public services. Now, part of the motivation there was, you know, we people who work for government should see us as, you know, wanting to you know, provide good service to us. So I'll give them that. But it baked in that language is that we're customers and we're not customers. We're citizens. Whether we pay taxes or not should does not matter. That's how you structure the tax system. But we are citizens. We deserve high quality services. We have to pay for them collectively. And it's not just we want everyone to have things. We need everybody to have things. We need everybody to have health care. We need everybody to be educated. We need every, you know, the air to be clean. Those things, the only things you can do to, is if you do them together. Yeah. And, um, and you noted that privatization um, and the sort of consumer, citizen as consumer mentality is kind of antithetical to democracy writ large, right? Part of the relationship between democracy and privatization is such that, you know, as, as you private move towards privatization, you increasingly pay for public goods as commodities, as individual pay. You know, we pay for the thing we use and only that thing. You know, the problem with that is that if we decide everybody needs clean water, for example, that we pay for as a commodity, you, you know, the, the people of Flint are simply unable to accomplish that. They just can't afford it. So you have to, in some way, pay, you have to you have to collectivize the payment for things to guarantee the universality of things. I wanted to end on a somewhat optimistic note. So um, I I saved this question until the end. Um, I I just wanted to touch briefly on um, some of the pushback against privatization that we've seen in recent years and some of the grassroots efforts to kind of re (laughs) to sort of you know, deprivatize things and uh, restore public ownership of certain services and, and goods. Can you can you talk a little bit about that? Because it, it has been happening um, both in this country and I think in, in other countries as well um, uh, with issues like water privatization, for instance. Yeah, there, there have been a, a, a great, uh, a large number of water remunicipalizations, you know, bringing it back into uh, control. Atlanta, I think was the biggest city that did it, but other cities around the country. And what's interesting about that is it's for sort of two, it, it always happens because of people in, in motion, you know, inside government and outside government. But it has two reasons that they've come back in, that things are brought back in. One is that it, they find it'll be cheaper, right? They can, they can do it actually cheaper. The second is they maybe can do it cheaper, maybe not, but they think they realize they really do need control of their water. They need the flexibility. They need response. You know, it's a it's a public thing that we don't want, you know, a private company to to have control over. Um, so that's happening in lots of places. It's another example I, I, I've been given a lot, and it's in the book as well. Is uh, on broadband. You know, broadband. I think we can all acknowledge is as basic and fundamental piece of infrastructure as the roads and you know and everything else. I mean, we just need it. Everyone needs it for education, for health, for buying stuff for communication for all things. So you probably, you may know that, you know, the number of cities, uh, you know, created municipal broadband systems. So, you know, provide public broadband to folks cheaper and, you know, more accessible to folks. And the, 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 the corporate response was to go to state legislatures and pass preemption laws that prohibited cities from doing that in lots of states around the country. But there's one example, I think that, you know, where they did that, that gives a, a little, piece of sense of the possibility here is Colorado passed a law like that, but it allowed the uh, voters in community and cities, if they wanted to, they could take it to the ballot and vote to create a municipal uh, broadband system. And in every city that they did that, 
that um, they won, it won overwhelmingly, huge numbers. Loveland, Denver, there's a whole long list of cities. So it's you know it, I mean it says that people understand what everybody needs, right? That 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 this is now fundamental to all of us. It says that number one, number two. I think people, almost everybody I know, realizes that our you know our internet companies are not always our friend. They're not so called you know, models of efficiency. We're all frustrated with them. So, it, you know, it kind of breaks the private sector is more efficient in all cases because it's clearly not, you know, and just in all of our individual frustrations. And that when people take action, you know, we can take it back. Do you have any um, thoughts about what the role of the labor movement should be in resisting privatization? And I ask this sort of for two reasons, because I know that historically the labor movement hasn't, or unions particularly, um, you know, hasn't always been, uh, you know, at the forefront of speaking out against efforts to outsource or privatize government. They've you know, often been uh, primarily concerned just simply with, uh, you know, the conditions of their members, right? Um, and, and also because I know that that historically, you know, the labor movement has um, existed as a way for working class people, ordinary citizens to, to band together collectively to affect change. And it is actually as a collective movement, it predates um, many of the institutions and resources that we see as public today. So where do you see the role of the labor movement in the current debate? Yeah. So I have very strong feelings about opinions about this, actually. So because we work primarily with public sector unions right now in all of them, you know, um, nationally and in places around the country. And um, there's 20 million people that work for government in America. Important fact to have. Huge. So. um so just thinking about the public sector unions right now. So right now they're in the situation as follows, because I spent, you know, I go to the conventions, I meet with them, I give talks and workshops and things. So they know that, you know, they are swimming in an anti-government environment where they, the, the population, the, you know, the residents of New York, where I was most recently, think that, you know, all the New York state workers are lazy and inefficient and, you know, paid too much. They know that. But then on the flip side, they also, when they describe their work, they're proud of it and they do cool things. Uh, you know, when they go to work on the day, I met scientists and healthcare workers and even probation officers. I've met, you know, lots and lots of people across the public sector. So what I believe is that if, and what I tell them and over and over again is that if they, you know, in, in their individual union and then across the labor movement, if across the public sector labor movement, if they're not advocate the the primary advocates for public goods to advocating the role of in a, a vibrant role of government and to improving government where it needs improvement, then who is? There, uh, sort of, there's no other force that could play that role in that powerful way. And I see, and I, and you know, and I see it happening. There's a union in New York that we work with, a professional union of, of state workers in New York that is moving in that direction. They're engaging their members. They're, te- you know, they're they're doing storytelling. They're engaging with the community. They're starting to say that this, you're, you know, we're right. This is the way to do it. We have to build up the idea of public goods and public, you know, that the, the public has a role. We have to push back on the it's all bad because it's not. Uh, we have to make people labor, you know, workers, spokespeople for public goods and services in more ways than just, hey, just don't take, you know, it's not, it's not just about your job. It's about public service. So I think 
you know, that's the exact direction that I think we need to go because the right has said public bad, government bad. We need to say, no, it's first off, it's about public goods, public things. And second is there's lots of stuff that happens in government that is good and where it's not. We want to be the reformers because the other side, uh, you know, they've captured the mantle of reform. Their reform is, you know, chop it up and privatize it. Yeah. And, you know, I suppose the same could go for private sector unions as well, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I was a political director of a labor council for 10 years, for a number of years. And so, you know, I work with all of them. You know, the workers should be in solidarity with other workers. So there's a there's that level, right? And so, you know, the public sector union should be talking to their private sector union counterparts to say, you know, to 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 chip away at their anti-government and their, you know, anti-tax and all that, you know, attitudes. There's plenty of it. They need to, you know, they need to be constantly educated, constantly, um, as well as they're building their own forces to be really advocates for the common good. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. That was Donald Cohen, founder and director of In the Public Interest and co-author of The Privatization of Everything. Regular listeners to Belabored will know that I'm spending a lot of time on supply chain issues at the moment, and so won't be surprised to hear me plug the special issue of the American Prospect on the supply chain. In particular, though the whole issue is worth a read, and I sort of argued at not having pitched a piece for it, I wanted to call attention to a piece on The Hidden Costs of Containerization by Amir Kafagi. I'm just going to dive in because it kind of had me hooked from the jump. Quote, as the world celebrated the new year with family and friends, 23-year-old Filipino seafarer Vince Valeriano marked a dispiriting milestone. For over 15 months, the soft-spoken Valeriano and 22 of his fellow Filipino crewmates have been aboard Cypress Sea Line's massive 54,000-ton MBSC Maria without ever leaving the ship. This is their second consecutive holiday season without stepping ashore. Although Valeriano was well aware of the long stretches of time that he would be away from his family when he began seafaring two years ago, he could never have anticipated that he would not step on land for this long. Valeriano says that he and his crewmates have been going stir-crazy. We cannot go shopping. We're very homesick here because the internet is limited and we can't contact our family. To make matters worse, for two months, Valeriano and the rest of the crew of the Maria have been in a seaman's form of purgatory, indefinitely anchored off the port of Long Beach, California, without any word when they will be able to unload their cargo and go back home. Originally, the crew of the Maria had an 11-month contract, but due to the traffic jam, their contract was involuntarily extended by four months. Valeriano makes a mere $530 a month aboard the ship, end quote. And while this case might be out of the ordinary, it's not that far out, as you heard in our interview a few weeks back with Charmaine Chua. Kafaji notes, according to data from the Marine Exchange of Southern California, as of the first week of January, there were 105 container ships backed up outside the ports of Los Angeles and Long Beach, by far the busiest ports in the United States. There was more cargo in the water offshore than the ports processed in all of November. Across the world, nearly 400 container vessels have piled up outside U.S. and Chinese ports, carrying 2.4 million containers. 
on board with the cargo are people like Valeriano. At the start of the pandemic, 400,000 seafarers across the world were stranded at sea, end quote. And of course, where there are exploited workers, there is someone turning a profit. Shippers, Cafeji notes, earned $25 billion in 2020, and a research consultant predicted $300 billion for 2021 and 2022. So yeah, I'm not going to dive too deeply here into the history of the containerization, which this piece does a good job of summing up very quickly because it's a long one. You heard about that, of course, from Charmaine, and you can read the article, which we will, of course, link at the Descent website for all of that detail. But I want to talk about the impact of the container on workers. Martin Daniluk, assistant professor in the School of Geography at the University of Nottingham, told Cafeji, the shipping container allowed us to take advantage of cheap labor overseas and move a lot of manufacturing offshore. And that comes at an incredible cost for workers domestically, but also for communities, end quote. We know, of course, a lot of this story. Factories close down in their longtime hubs in what become rust belts. Organized labor hemorrhages members as jobs disappear. But what's happening now on board the ships is new even for a supply chain that always ran on super exploitable workers. Cathagy writes, quote, On the ground, the exuberant and gregarious Stefan Muller, a tugboat captain with a passion for the sea who also serves as an inspector with the International Transport Workers Federation, ITF, the union that represents transport workers globally, has combed the shores of Long Beach on his boat, meeting with the crews of the ships anchored offshore. Throughout his many decades of organizing seafarers, he has never seen such a bottleneck, nor has he seen crews this exhausted. As he sees it, the entire shipping industry has grown unstable. In essence, the ships have become too big to fail. Crew members are being forced to work beyond the ends of their contracts and are getting very little in the way of extra pay. In 2018, the International Labor Organization set the recommended minimum wage for an able-bodied seafarer on a global vessel at $641 a month, but that minimum wage is just a suggestion, not a rule, and Valeriano, of course, makes much less than that. But at the moment, he's stuck, and the people working around the edges to try to ease the burden on the workers are stretched far too thin. Cathagy writes, quote, On land, 72-year-old Pat Pettit and her sister Mary have been running the International Seafarers Center, a worker center supporting seafarers in Long Beach, pretty much single-handedly throughout the pandemic. Pettit first volunteered with ISC in the 1980s and eventually became the organization's manager. Her grandfather was a seafarer, and so was her stepfather. I lived the seafarer's life, so I know how hard it is, she says. For long stretches of time, seafarers are alone with their thoughts and out of contact with the outside world. In the open ocean, seafarers have no access to Wi-Fi or the telephone. This can take a toll on one's mental health. Over 25% of seafarers suffer from severe depression, and nearly 6% of deaths at sea are caused by suicide. The pandemic has only worsened the alienation, and suicide rates have been increasing. Since the outbreak of the pandemic, Pettit has been driving back and forth to the port nonstop, purchasing and dropping off supplies for the seafarers anchored offshore. Even if seafarers are docked at port, their companies are not allowing them to come on shore out of fear of triggering a COVID outbreak on the ship. Together with the Long Beach Health Department, Pettit has been working to vaccinate as many of the crews as they can, and they have already vaccinated 10,000 workers. Although the past two years have been exhausting, pandemic has only strengthened Pettit's resolve in alleviating the plight of seafarers in the modest way that she can. Work on the ship has gotten way more difficult, especially with this pandemic, she says. It's just crazy, and I just feel sorry for them. End quote. 
But what Valeriano and his colleagues really want is to go home. And he's pretty sure, and we certainly agree, that he's earned it. My pick for ARG is Fighting Workplace Surveillance by Jamie Woodcock in Red Pepper. Surveillance is an issue that has crept up on workers of all types during the pandemic. As we have reported previously, over the past two years, managers have developed some brilliant digital tools for keeping an eye on their employees, especially when working from home through online monitoring. I first came across Woodcock's work as an Oxford researcher on the internet and its social implications. But his main thesis here is that surveillance is not really about what tool you use or what industry you're in, but about control and power. He notes that, quote, demand for employee surveillance software has jumped by 58% since the start of the pandemic, unquote. But that's only one facet of the emerging apparatus of labor control through surveillance. It's a story as old as capitalism itself, he writes. Quote, whether we call it supervision, management, or surveillance, bosses have always been keen to know what workers are up to. This involves watching to make sure they're putting in the effort and commitment that bosses require of them, particularly when trying to get them to work harder. It is part of the control that bosses attempt to exercise once we have agreed to work for them, unquote. Yes, obviously, bosses want to police workers to make them work harder, to drive them to be more productive, and to keep them perhaps from conspiring to rebel. But during the early days of industrial capitalism, surveillance was about the social structure of the entire workplace itself and the way social relationships were arranged within that structure. The factory emerged when employers realized that consolidating the workforce in a concentrated area where they could be controlled and directed under one roof in isolation from the rest of the world was more effective than the cottage system, a relatively decentralized and small-scale labor scheme based on household production. The intensification of industrial production contributed to the growth of cities, which allowed for dense networks of laborers and residents, all increasingly subject to government authority and policing. And in agriculture, the expansion of slavery in the New World often required the institutionalization of surveillance in the form of overseers, which in turn shaped the social dynamics and the brutal disciplinary systems of the fields. Centralization is essential to surveillance, whether we're talking about the evolution from the home workshop to the factory or the emergence of modern-day surveillance capitalism, in which cubicles or telecommuters' laptops are ringed by digital panopticons. Woodcock points out that worker surveillance reached an apogee with Frederick Taylor in the early 20th century. Taylorism was a philosophy of management that aimed to maximize productivity by minimizing worker autonomy. As Woodcock summarizes, Taylor's idea of efficiency was undergirded by a deep hostility toward the poor, whom he saw as inevitably prone to sloth and subversion. Quote, underworking, so he argued, involved, quote, deliberately working slowly so as to avoid doing a full day's work, unquote, also known as soldiering and, quote, constitutes the greatest evil with which the working people are now afflicted, unquote. Along with its connection to slavery and racism, Taylorism developed into a supposedly scientific approach to management based on the breaking down of work into quantifiable tasks. Surveillance here was achieved with a stopwatch, with the aim of exerting control over all aspects of the work, preventing the worker from soldiering, unquote. One can easily see how this management framework was implemented in the assembly line, in which labor is divided and syncopated into optimally efficient units. Meanwhile, supervisors prowl the factory floor to keep watch, which is presumably not only intended to monitor us for errors, but also to intimidate and humiliate. But what about the so-called white-collar or pink-collar workers of the 20th century, whose jobs were supposed to be a cut above the blue-collar drudgery and surveillance of the working class? Unfortunately, Woodcock writes, cubicle work has just inspired a whole new wave of innovation in surveillance. 
monitoring workers through the same technologies that are used for actual production makes surveillance both less physically obvious and more psychologically invasive. Woodcock writes, quote, the combination of computers and telephones allows for software to be easily used to monitor the performance of call center workers. The computational control also allows for speeding up the rate of calls, creating, quote, an assembly line in the head, unquote, of workers. Data is generated automatically about worker performance, calculating the length of calls, success rates, sales, and so on, unquote. And now in the 21st century, with the advent of platform work companies like Uber or DoorDash, apps give corporations unilateral control over workers' job assignments, wages, and behavior. Woodcock dubs this, quote, algorithmic management, which takes the automation of surveillance further by providing algorithmic decision-making, often taking the form of so-called deactivations in which workers are fired, unquote. During the COVID era, telecommuting workers have faced similar monitoring through programs such as, quote, tools to read instant messages and emails, application usage recording, viewing calendars, notes and reminders, remote desktop control, etc. When an application does the policing and disciplining that would, in a previous era, have been performed by managers, surveillance becomes fully automated and thus maximally efficient. Unless, of course, workers decide that they've had enough. Since these tools are often implemented without workers' consent, it is difficult to resist them. But Woodcock exhorts readers to be vigilant about identifying these surveillance tools and to take collective action by collaborating to share information with each other or by forming a union. With the recent uprisings we've seen among app-based rideshare and delivery workers, we've seen an eruption of Luddite-like outrage, as well as savvy tech-based organizing, as workers push back against oppressive algorithms. They do this by affirming their rights and humanity in the face of a surveillance system that is above all meant to dehumanize us. And that is all for this episode of Belabored. Thanks, as always, to Colin Kinneborough and Natasha Lewis for making us sound good. And if you want to support our team in doing more independent reporting on labor issues, please consider becoming a sustaining member by supporting us on Patreon. You can go to patreon.com slash belabored, and you can get some pretty cool swag designed by Molly Crabapple to go along with your support for our journalism. We'd also love it if you could leave a review for us on the podcast platform of your choice. It really helps us find new listeners, and you can get the complete archives of all of our shows, all 240 episodes, at dissentmagazine.org. And there you can also help sustain Dissent Magazine by subscribing. And of course, we don't just want your monetary contributions. We would love it if you could drop us a line, if you've got questions or suggestions for show ideas, if you are currently trying to organize your workplace in dealing with union busting and intimidation tactics. We want to hear about it. If you are thinking about organizing your Starbucks, let us know. If you are a local public sector worker and you're fed up with seeing your government being privatized by corporations, drop us a line. You can reach us via email at belaboredatdescentmagazine.org, or you can catch us on the Twitters at hashtag belabored. And that's a wrap. See you back here in two weeks. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's belabored podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored. 